Good afternoon, everyone. It is now 5 o'clock here at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. You are listening to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this program, the CFRC news team welcomes new guests from the Queen's University community and covers news, issues, upcoming and recent events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's University students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome, and now it's time for your Queen's University news headlines right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. In recent campus news, a team of researchers from Queen's and Environment and Climate Change Canada have shown that accelerated 21st century warming has triggered a striking shift in algal composition in Great Slave Lake, North America's deepest lake. Such a pronounced change at the base of the food chain is a clear indication that this Great Northern Lake is entering a new ecological regime, explains Kathleen Ruland, lead author and senior research scientist at Queen's Paleoecological Environment Assessment and Research Lab, otherwise known as PEARL, here in the Department of Biology. We'll catch up with Dr. Ruland in the coming weeks to dig deeper into this story. In further campus news, members of the Queen's, Kingston and Canadian medical communities gathered to mark the unveiling of a new Queen's Remembers plinth commemorating those impacted by the 1918 ban that prevented the admission of black students to Queen's Medical School up to 1965. In 2019, the university moved to confront its past actions, issuing a formal apology for the racist policy in an official ceremony and committing to ongoing efforts to support black student access to and success in medical professions. Today, we honour the black medical students who were pressured to leave and denied entry to Queen's Medical School during the span, said Principal and Vice-Chancellor Patrick Dean. In his words, it was a great injustice that altered their futures and the course of their lives and careers. This plinth, like others on campus, enhances our understanding of the university's history for community members and visitors to campus, said Dean. The unveiling event was held at the Medical Quadrangle on September 13th, where the permanent plinth is erected. Oyedeji Ayanrinde, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Chair of the Commission on Black Medical Students, served as Master of Ceremonies. He discussed the legacy of the ban and the formal apology and highlighted the gathering as a moment to acknowledge the past, recognize the present, and look with hope toward the future. In other campus news, members of the Queen's community gathered on September 18th to celebrate the official opening of a new outdoor Indigenous gathering space on campus. Located at the south end of Tyndall Field, the new space will now serve as an important place for learning, ceremony and reflection. The public opening came after a special event the week before for Indigenous members of the Queen's community. This is a teaching and learning space for the whole campus with a focus on teaching of Indigenous studies and giving Indigenous faculty a space where they can teach classes in the ways they have always taught, in the ways we have always come to know things, said Candace Baptiste, who is the Senior Director, Student Inclusion and Equity and Belonging, during her remarks at the event. In other campus news on October 2nd, Queen's University will recognize the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The university has undertaken a number of events on campus this week. And on Friday, September 29th, Dr. Sarah Funnell, Associate Dean of Indigenous Health, will give a talk entitled Climbing the Mountain Towards Reconciliation at 1 p.m. in the School of Medicine. On Monday, October 2nd, there will be a sacred fire held at Agnes Benedictson Field at 1 p.m. 
Further, in recognition of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, students at the Tricolor Outlet have been readying to help the campus community show solidarity in orange. Together with Queen's staff and local Cree artist Jaylene Cardinal, they have prepared an orange t-shirt design that are on sale now until October 2nd, with a portion of the proceeds set to support the Orange Shirt Society, an Indigenous-led organization dedicated to educating people in Canada about the legacy of residential schools and supporting survivors. Wearing an orange shirt is an act of solidarity with Indigenous people and communities impacted by Canada's residential school system and an outward show of support for survivors and families of those taken too soon, says Deanna Fialo, director of the Yellowhouse Student Centre for Equity and Inclusion and the co-chair of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation Working Group. Fialo added that they were pleased to collaborate with students at the Tricolor Outlet and Jaylene Cardinal to create a unique and impactful orange t-shirt design that inspires meaningful discussion about the effects of residential schools and the legacy they have left behind. The orange shirts feature an image created by local Cree artist Jaylene Cardinal. The image depicts a pair of children's moccasins set between woodland forget-me-not flowers. The tricolor team have prepared 2,000 t-shirts and they will be available to students, staff, and faculty for purchase. They will be on sale from September 14th through October 2nd at the tricolor outlet and online as well as at pop-ups outside of Douglas Library and the Queen's Centre. And all members of the Queen's University community are advised that with the 2023 National Day for Truth and Reconciliation falling on a Saturday, all academic activity will be suspended on Monday, October 2nd, in observance of the day. Coming up next, we'll listen to a discussion by Queen's University Chancellor, the Honourable Murray Sinclair, on the usage of the term reconciliation. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon to those who are watching in the afternoon. I'm uh, Chancellor Murray Sinclair from Queen's University and uh, former senator, former judge. Um, and uh, I've been asked to talk to you a little bit today about um, the intention behind the use of the term reconciliation. What is it really intended to be about? and how should we be using it? Uh, how else should we be understanding it? Uh, and let me begin by pointing out that the term reconciliation was not a term that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself came up with. Um, we developed an understanding about it, of course, but the term goes back to the first uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was created in South America in the early 1960s, but it was uh, more widely and internationally made known as a term uh, because of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission led by uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, when we looked at the you know, term as it uh, evolved over the years and as it had been used by those various other commissions, and there were some 60 other TRCs uh, around the world, um, we saw that the way that the issue of reconciliation was approached in the utilization of the term was uh, different from one to the other slightly. Um, the, the term itself, I think, really meant to establish a peaceful relationship uh, or a new relationship or to uh, end uh, an era of 
of conflict between two peoples or more peoples. And the um, utilization of it depended often on the context. So in some parts of South America, for example, it was intended to address the fact that there had been armed conflict, armed resistance um, on the part of uh, groups against the government. And the term was used in order to negotiate a peaceful resolution to those armed conflicts. So it had a different usage in, in that context. And in addition, in the era of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, of course, we know that it was intended to address the uh, process of moving from an era of apartheid and the impact of apartheid into a more uh, peaceful coexistence between whites and uh, South Africans. The, um, the era had been, the era of apartheid had been uh, marked by some serious uh, violence that was taken against blacks by the South African government and um, to the extent that people were murdered, people were um, eliminated from existence through disappearances or um, kidnapped and sent elsewhere. So uh, the, the focus of their commission was really to try to bring uh, perpetrators and victims together in order to see if uh, the perpetrator himself or herself uh, and the victim of that perpetrator's acts uh, could uh, come to a peaceful understanding of things in order to avoid having to prosecute everybody who had committed a, a crime during the era. And uh, it was because crimes had been committed on both sides and so it was to avoid having to go through the use of the criminal courts. In Canada, uh, of course, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was created in order to address the impacts of residential schools and uh, I think also intended to address the era of oppression that was created uh, following Confederation in Canada to force in indigenous people to give up their cultures, their languages, their lands, uh, and assimilate forcibly, if necessary, into Canadian society. The intention was, of course, to eliminate them as a separate and unique racial group, uh, with the intent being, of course, that uh, the government would thereby uh, find it more easy to uh, get access to their lands, to force them into urbanized settings so that their, the government's uh, support for their communities or uh, need to support their communities could be reduced. Uh, and so uh, while the, the focus initially was on getting indigenous people, First Nations people, to move from their broad territories onto smaller Indian reserves, ultimately the focus became to urbanize them. And, and so in the 1950s, for example, we see a policy of forced urbanization. Um, and, and so that was how the issue of um, the conflict uh, uh, resolved or evolved over the years. But during that time, of course, uh, some significant abuses occurred. Children were taken away from their families, often for no good reason. 
and placed into residential schools uh, forcibly to be assimilated. Uh, residential schools were publicly supposed to be about education, but very little education took place there. No child, for example, ever finished uh, residential school experience uh, and able to utilize that education in order to get into a post-secondary institution. Uh, often they'd have to go to a public school in order to get uh, a complete education so they could go to university or some post-secondary education program. Uh, so the schools themselves uh, really were not about education so much as they were about um, forced assimilation. And when you hear about the experiences of residential school survivors, about the, having their hair removed, having um, their skin bleached, having their traditional clothing taken away from them, being forced <clears throat> to not speak their languages, um, being physically punished about that, often as well not even being allowed to speak to their brothers and sisters because then that would tend to um, permit them or cause them to speak their traditional languages. Um, visits to the schools were limited. Um, the government created, of course, the pass system. And uh, if a parent was going to visit a child in a school, they had to make certain promises before they'd get a pass in order to go to the school. Um, but the real intent, of course, was to uh, annihilate indigenous people as a unique cultural and racial group. And to that extent, uh, the actions of the government and Canadian society generally during that period fell very much within the definition of genocide as used in the United Nations Convention on Genocide as adopted in 1949, uh, which uh, included the force, forcible assimilation of uh, children uh, from one group into the culture of another group so as to eliminate their racial identity. And so the fact that it was a genocide was easy to conclude, uh, but the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada uh, was uh, required not to make findings of criminal wrongdoing, and that would have been a finding of criminal wrongdoing. So in our report, we refer to it as cultural genocide. Genocide not through the uh, killing of people, genocide through the forcible assimilation of people. And, uh, and so when you look at that, the question then becomes, if we're going to talk about reconciliation, we have to talk about it in the context of uh, what we need to do in order to allow indigenous people to regain their culture, to regain their languages, to regain their sense of identity. Uh, because it's only in doing that that indigenous people will be allowed to uh, revert to or to continue on their path of identity, on the path that was created for them initially that they were following and had been following for thousands and thousands of years before the arrival of European settlers, and one that they were most comfortable with, that certainly marked them to be a part of uh, an important group. But one of the things um, we have to keep in mind is that 
while the intention of residential schools had been to forcibly assimilate indigenous people into Canadian society, the racism within Canadian society was so strong that indigenous people never had a chance of ever being treated as equals. And so that lack of equality was also part of the reconciliation issue. And uh, dealing with the issue of racism is part of what reconciliation needs to be thought of here in Canada. And there are other aspects to it as well. Of course, reparations for what was taken and what was done, uh, reparations for the injuries that were caused, reparations for the loss of language, uh, recognizing that uh, the terms of actions that governments need to undertake as identified in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples are an important part of uh, the reconciliation movement because the UN Declaration uh, itself was a focal point on reconciliation and so we refer to it in a number of our calls to action in the TRC report as um, an important part of what the reconciliation movement is about and that is uh, the perpetrator, in this case the government of Canada, uh, taking steps to allow indigenous people to regain those things that the government itself took away or forcibly removed. Uh, and they must do uh, things at equivalent cost and with equivalent effort to ensure that they can regain those things back. So the practice of their cultural teachings, the practice of their traditional teachings, their spirituality, their sovereignty over the lands that they have not properly surrendered or that have not been properly taken from them needs to be recognized. Uh, the courts are working somewhat to uh, recognize that aspect of reconciliation, but uh, there's a lot that needs to be done because Canadian society has been approaching reconciliation from the perspective that, well, as long as we admit that things were done wrong in the past or that injuries occurred and that proper compensation needs to be given, some lands need to be given back, uh, then we're good and we can just move forward. Uh, I've heard the expression often that indigenous people just need to get over it and move on. And the reality is that that's not an easy thing to do. And we shouldn't expect that easily to be undertaken by any group that has been so long oppressed. 11 generations of indigenous people have experienced that oppression since Confederation and continue to experience it to this day because we still have not come to understand what it is that we must do to stop the systematic and systemic racism now that we have to face, not just the blatant racists, but also the unconscious racism, that systemic racism uh, so clearly involves. In simple terms, reconciliation ultimately is about this phrase, I want to be your friend, and I want you to be my friend, and I want us to see each other as equals, so that whenever I need your help, you will be there to give it to me, and whenever you need my help, I will be there to give it to you. And if we can think of reconciliation in those very simple terms, then it will help guide the actions that we need to follow going forward. It needn't be complicated, 
as complicated as we are making it, but it is something that will strike deeply at the way that this company, this, this country has evolved. So I hope that helps you in your thinking. Miigwech. Thank you so much for tuning into Campus Beat. And now it's time for the Campus Catch-Up, brought to you by the Queen's Journal. Visit queensjournal.ca for the latest in campus news and to subscribe to the Campus Catch-Up newsletter. In recent Campus Catch-Up headlines, contributor Sarah Adams submitted an opinion piece about graduate teaching assistant training and the need for improvements in their training at Queen's University. Assistant News Editor Sophia Tosello also wrote about the City of Kingston's University District Safety Initiative in effect from October 14th through November 1st and new provisions that compel individual in-person court appearances if found with open liquor containers, underage drinking, public intoxication, and violations of the Highway Traffic Act rules. Assistant News Editor Michaela Shetler also covered the first Care Not Cops police abolitionist workshop that took place on September 20th in Assistant News Editor... Susie Lenster also covered the drumming circle for Indigenous students held each Tuesday from 1 to 2 p.m. at the Four Directions Indigenous Student Centre. Learn more by subscribing to Campus Catch-Up and visiting queensjournal.ca today. And now over to Erica Singh with more in Campus News. Thank you, Dinah. Hello, my name is Erica Singh, and these are your Campus News headlines for the week of September 28th. First, the AMS has released its commission budgets for the 2023-2024 academic year. Most commissioners presented balanced budgets for approval by AMS Assembly, which are unanimously approved. Notable changes include an increased allocation for campus affairs, which has doubled to $99,500, focusing on harm reduction initiatives and financial support for students. The External Affairs Commission budget decreased slightly, with part of the Commissioner's salary redirected to the Academic Graven Center. The Social Issues Commission budget increased due to two full-time commissioners, with initiatives relating to hiring equity policies and sexual health campaigns. The Environmental Sustainability Commission is organizing events and opposing development, while the club's budget has increased for club support and projects. The OUSA budget primarily covers membership and conference expenses, and there are plans for in-person office hours and voting for AMS elections. In other news, on September 20th, CARE Not Cops, a police abolitionist coalition of students and the community members here at Queens, hosted an open workshop to discuss the police presence on campus and the role of peer-to-peer -peer security services, Queens Stucons. The group aims to promote networks of care within the Kingston community and among Queen's students instead of relying on a police presence. They are concerned about Queen's pledge to donate $750,000 to the Kingston Police over five years and argue that the school should invest in harm reduction strategies instead. Care Not Cops has heard from marginalized students who have had negative experiences with the police on campus and believe that increased police presence will disproportionately harm these students. Queen's Stucons, while intended to ensure student safety, were also discussed at the workshop with some questioning to whether they represent a form of policing on campus. 
The debate continues as the group prepares for large party weekends, aiming to teach students how to hold the police accountable and care for each other independently. Next, representatives from Queens participated in Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs Action Weekend at the United Nations headquarters in New York City from September 18th to the 19th. The Queen's delegation included Heather Aldersey, Special Advisor to the Principal for Sustainable Development Goals, AMS President Kate McCaig, and PhD student Victor O'Dell. They focused on advancing sustainable development goals. The SDGs adopted by the UN in 2015 aim to address global challenges such as poverty eradication, environmental protection, and peace promotion by 2030. At the summit, leaders discussed progress and strategies to achieve these goals, emphasizing the need for urgent action to meet the 2030 target. Queen's is actively incorporating the SDGs into university activities and encouraging student involvement in driving a change towards a more sustainable and equitable world. Thanks, Erica. And now we're going to hear more from Erica and her conversation with the Arts and Sciences Undergraduate Society. Thank you. Last week, I had the opportunity to meet with the president of the Arts and Science Undergraduate Society. ASSIS was founded in 1890 and serves as Queen's largest faculty society. Here is that interview. Hi, Amaya. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us how you became involved with ASSIS? Of course. Okay, so my name is Amaya Walters. I use she, her pronouns. I'm in my fifth year of sociology and a minor in Black Studies. Um, in terms of how I became involved with ASSIS, in my third year of university, I was on the Queen's Equity Conference team, which is a committee under the Equity Commission in ASSIS. Uh, I really enjoyed my time there, and most of my work has been through equity on campus. With that, I just want to get more involved in, in ASSIS itself. It seemed like a great community, and I wanted to be more engaged with arts and science students. And then when I saw the election coming up, I saw it as a great opportunity to run and see if I could have further reach on campus. Great, thank you so much. So what are some of your goals and priorities for this upcoming term? So I think as we all can tell, student engagement is really low or it's just it's just kind of coming, coming, we're coming out of COVID and seeing that students are wanting to get more involved but aren't sure exactly where to go. And I think that's especially the case with the second and third year students at the moment. And I'm trying to make ASSIS a place for students who aren't involved in student government to feel as though they're included. I think there might be the false perception that in order to be involved with ASSIS, you need to be either a volunteer or working, you know, part-time or even full-time. ASSIS is a faculty society that serves students, and that means we have a lot of student-facing events where people can just come and participate and make some friends and, and just enjoy one another's company. Um, so I'm just trying to prioritize student engagement and some of the goals with that come with, you know, marketing, making sure that our events are known to students. Um, and to also humanize ASSIS to make sure that people know that, you know, who I am and who the vice presidents are as well as the rest of the council so they feel that they have students who are supporting them and who they can turn to if they have any questions or, you know, suggestions for how we can make ASSIS more accessible and more inclusive. Um, another one of 
um, a long-term goal, I think, of ASIS is, you know, focusing on, on equity and making sure we're able to serve all students. Um, and that's going to look like changing some internal structures. As we know, student government isn't always accessible to a lot of students. And if we think about the foundation of student government and who was allowed to hold these positions in the past, we see the way that's reproduced in, in today's world and through today's ASIS even. So just changing how ASIS operates through external consultations. There's two positions. One's a new position that I'm hoping to pass at assembly later today. It's the Black Student Liaison position. And this position, position will allow um, myself to consult with a member of the Black community, Black student community, to gain some insight into how we can better serve them and what kind of gaps are present. And there's another student liaison position, which is a collaboration with the Queen's Native Student Association, and this is the Indigenous student liaison position, and this is very similar to the Black student liaison position. However, this one already exists, so just trying to revive that and get those consultations going. And then there's also some new trainings that we're having internally. So during council pre-week, which is the week before classes begin, we train our, our council members on a variety of different topics. However, you know, I took a look at the HR policies and revived some of them and took out the ones I felt weren't as relevant and replaced them with some ones that are. And I can give some examples. One of those is gender-based violence bystander intervention training, which trains students on how to intervene in cases of sexual or gender-based violence. And then another one is similar however it's different it's called responding to disclosures and that is another training offered through um, the student experience office and the human rights and equity office and that's teaching students how to respond to once again that was amaya walters the 100th and 33rd president of assis to listen to the full interview please check out today in ygk on both spotify and apple music and that's it for Campus Beat today. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to subscribe to the Campus Beat podcast on iTunes and Apple Music. Have a lovely afternoon.